Now I, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, where this practice comes from and how it developed and how it's used today and how it could be used other ways we could use it uh, other than uh, traditional ways or ways we can um, adapt the tradition to, to suit our circumstances. I think the word koan is now practically... I actually never looked it up, but I bet you can find it in the American Heritage Dictionary, I'm, I'm guessing, because it's become uh, such a well-known word in English. Uh, and interestingly, the word is not a technical Buddhist word. It actually comes from ordinary uh, Chinese secular vocabulary. Uh, the word koan is Japanese, but gongan, which is the Chinese word, uh, same word, transliterated into Japanese, comes from ordinary Chinese vocabulary rather than technical Buddhist vocabulary. Uh, as many of you probably know from using Buddhist vocabulary, uh, that it's, you know, Buddhist vocabulary is very sophisticated and very useful in describing uh, mental and spiritual states and how to work with them. Uh, and although the Chinese Zen masters were familiar with this vocabulary, they decided that uh, they wanted to reflect a more dynamic and practical kind of Buddhist understanding. And so they didn't use, uh, I mean, they didn't focus so much on ordinary Buddhist terminology. They went to ordinary Chinese language, particularly slang language, in order to create a new terminology. The word kong on, in, in fact, uh, comes from uh, the legal world in China. It actually means a public case, like a precedent in, in legal uh, jargon. Um, and, 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 of course, it's really ironic that the Chinese Zen masters chose this word for uh, their practice of koan, because uh, in a legal argument, in China as well as here in the West, uh, a, a public case is something that's used as a linchpin in what usually is a subtle argument where you're making fine distinctions between one thing and another. I'm very much focused on this because we have a son who is uh, a second year law student and we have many, he actually happens to be home right now and we have many discussions with him in which we are you know, making fine distinctions. Uh, we don't know public cases, but he does, and makes distinctions on the basis of them. So it's very ironic that here the gongan is used rather than making fine distinctions. It's used as a device to thrust the mind and spirit beyond attachment to distinctions into a, an experience of oneness. And I'm sure the old Chinese Zen masters took great delight in this essential irony in the very use of the word koan. And, and the koans were, in fact, public cases. They were public records, uh, like almost like legal documents. They were books of koans, which uh, were uh, stories of the sayings and doings of the, of the old masters. And, you know, in the beginning of uh, Zen, which b began in China, um, there was a sense and, and a famous phrase that was always applied to Zen. Zen is beyond words and letters. 
it's an existential truth that points directly to the human heart without the aid of normative doctrine. So, therefore, uh, the Zen masters were not interested in quoting Buddhist scriptures to kind of, you know, validate their perspectives. And so it was natural for them to create a literature which had to do not with Buddhist scriptures and careful doctrine, but rather stories and sayings, usually very pithy and immediate kind of sayings of the Chinese Zen masters uh, who, who were at the beginning of the tradition. This became for them the kind of Bible, the, 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 the expression of religious truth and authority, uh, more so than, than the sutras. And then, of course, these stories were circulated in, in, in Zen communities. They were eventually written down. They, they were the beginning of a, a whole new uh, Buddhist literary tradition that hadn't existed before. And, and the koan literature is vast. It's like a whole new canon, you know, in in Buddhism. And the the way that the literature was originally written was in form of biographical sketches of the great masters. So that there would be the record of so and so, and the record of so and so, and in that record, there would generally be a, a long list of sh- very short, pithy stories or sayings. And then from these biographical records would be taken, you know, an individual teacher, let's say, would maybe take his or her favorite one from this teacher and favorite one from that teacher, and they would create their own little curriculum of stories, and then uh, eventually uh, teachers compiled lists and published lists, and then eventually a few of those compendia of koans uh, became standard. Uh, and as they went along and as they were recycled and reused, they became uh, more and more sophisticated, more and more stripped down, a uh, kind of literary style uh, developed. And it's interesting to study, like take one story and study its, its development over a period of time. You can see how the story becomes more pointed, briefer, more punchy, and there even becomes a kind of a Zen... Um, attitude that sometimes is uh, over the top, you know, as the story (laughs) goes on and on through the generations. And then there are different types of stories and there are various kind of of classifications of different types of stories. Some of the koan are actually not too unfamiliar to us. They're they're little parables similar to what you might find uh, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament or in the tales of the Hasidic masters or the desert fathers, you can see, you know, pretty immediately what the point of the story is and what it's trying to tell you. Uh, And it's kind of a neat little parable that clearly gives you something to think about that is thinkable. But then there are other Zen stories uh, that seem to have absolutely no thinkable um, content whatsoever. You can't say it's telling you this or it's telling you that. And, and this was a specialty in the Zen school of the development of a story or a phrase which really uh, was impervious to any kind of intellectual discussion, even emotional, heartfelt, spiritually oriented intellectual discussion, but rather could only be useful uh, by applying it to meditation on the cushion. After many, many, many long hours, you might have some 
sudden insight into the story that would not have any intellectual component to it whatsoever. And this is the kind of story, I think, that usually we think of as a koan, a story that absolutely has nothing. You can't get anything out of it. Uh, it's paradoxical or impossible or tasteless. Uh, I don't mean tasteless in the sense of in bad taste, but having no taste you know, as a story. Uh, this is what usually we think of as, uh, as koan. And uh, uh, let's see. So the practice of meditation in Buddhism that I was, in Zen, I mean, uh, that I was uh, trying to give a little instruction uh, about in the beginning, in our sitting period, this style of meditation uh, is a little different from other um, uh, forms of Buddhist meditation. Although nowadays here in the West, especially in Northern California, where we have so many Buddhist traditions influencing each other and, and mixing and changing together, I doubt that there's that much difference, the truth of the matter is, between uh, Zen meditation and the Vipassana meditation that you do here. But uh, originally, Zen meditation, as it developed, and, it, and, and this is important because it developed hand-in-hand hand with these stories. As the stories developed, the meditation practice developed, and they're really hard to tease apart from one another. But the meditation practice uh, that went along with the koan uh, meditation was kind of collapsing two Buddhist meditation practices into one. And, and I know you know these terms, uh, shamatha and vipassana. One being, shamatha being calming meditation and vipassana being insight meditation. And so these were uh, classically distinguished as two different practices, two different ways of cultivating the mind in meditation. One way, uh, shamatha, which usually was considered to come first, was to, to calm the mind and, and develop a concentration so that the mind, so that you were capable of sitting down and focusing the mind on a point. You could do, you would develop, it was a, which was considered, considered to be a skill that had to be developed and cultivated over time to be able to focus the mind on the breath or, or on, uh, sometimes they would look at objects, a candle flame or some disc that they would fashion um, and then, once you had some, uh, once you had some uh, ability to focus the mind, then you would uh, turn the mind toward insight, and the insight had to do with having a deeply developed, beyond intellectual recognition. To, to simplify it and make it pretty easy to understand that things were radically impermanent, that there was nothing contrary to our, the way we live, where we think that you know, we are permanent and the world is permanent and so forth, that there was nothing that existed more than a moment and that this was how life was and that you'd have insight into that once you could develop a concentrated enough mind. So this was a long course of study in meditation. And usually in classical Buddhism, it was preceded by learning sutras and monastic discipline and so forth and so on. Well, in Zen, 
these two meditation practices were collapsed into one, and which meant that you would develop concentration and insight simultaneously. So you were concentrating the mind and inquiring as to the nature of reality and experience at the same time. And not only that, but all of life was collapsed into that practice so that you were, you were expected, you were training yourself to have that way of, of looking and, and, and concentrating and being, asking, you know, inquiring of reality all the time so that there was, in other words, no difference between calming and insight meditation and further, no difference between meditation and enlightenment and no difference between meditation and enlightenment and living on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. So this was all, this is kind of uh, the way that Zen meditation was practiced and the way that the stories were shaped to support that practice. So then it became an obvious device to take these stories that were developed in concert with this meditation practice and use the stories as objects of insight. You could use anything really. You could, as we were doing, we weren't using a story in our practice a moment ago. We were using the experience of listening as a, as a focus for inquiry. Who, who is listening or what is listening? So there's not just a passive listening, but there's a sense of, what is this? What's going on here? So you don't really need a story, uh, but uh, a story can have uh, certain advantages because um, you can use the story to understand more immediately various aspects, subtle aspects of the teachings of Buddha. Uh, So it's maybe less immediate, but also a little bit more subtle and sophisticated. So the way that we were sitting with the question, who is listening, experiencing listening and asking who is listening, uh, a student would be given one of these little stories and they would meditate on the story in a similar way uh, that we were doing a moment ago. And ultimately, in, in a lot of Zen places in China and Japan, this literature and this method, to a great extent, replaced all the rest of Buddhism. And so, uh, while a lot of Buddhist uh, students did study uh, sutras and Buddhist doctrine. A lot of them didn't. A lot of them just studied and just practiced with the Zen literature. Um, The first person in the West who introduced the whole idea of koan practice and koan study was D.T. Suzuki, who gave a really famous series of classes and lectures at Columbia in the early I think it was the early 50s. It could have even been the late 40s. And it's one of the most astonishing things. Who attended those classes? You you constantly, over the years, I'm surprised to know that so-and-so attended so-and-so. It's it's really one of the unwritten histories of American culture. The number of people who went on to become important influences culturally who didn't necessarily cite Zen or Suzuki, uh, but actually did attend those lectures and was quite influenced by them, and, and his many books uh, that I, I, think he, I think he wrote in English, I can't remember, but anyway, many of them were, were in English. And um, he emphasized the paradox and the irrational aspect of koans. In fact, for him, the main point was, 
to, to sort of crash through the barrier of rationality. And, and so for him, the koan was exactly all about um, being, you know, anti-rationality or transcending rationality. But I think this view is no longer uh, emphasized or, or doesn't seem to be quite right. I think it was a view that Suzuki was uh, proposing in the cultural moment. But actually, koans are not necessarily illogical. They don't necessarily thumb their noses at logic. And in fact, in Japanese scholarship, there are vast writings and books and treatises and so forth about koan, discussing and talking about koan. There is a way of logically discussing koan if you want to do that. It's different, of course, from meditating on koan. But you can logically discuss koan. It's a different kind of logic, a different style of logic than maybe the one we're, we're used to, but, but this can be done. But our interest here is not logical or illogical discussion about koan so much as it is the practice of koan. And how, so how did they practice with these stories? Uh, well, it seems as if uh, the Chinese uh, and Japanese Zen masters were very individualistic and there were many different ways and a lot of the ways that the koan were used was private, you know, in, in a particular monastery or temple. There was no effort to have a journal where you discuss these things or write books about it. So we don't really know, actually, most of what, how, how they were used. We do know there were a variety of methods. And uh, what we now know as the koan system, what in the West is uh, considered the koan system, is actually fairly a recent system. Uh, there was an 18th century uh, Japanese uh, teacher uh, named Hakuin who devised this really wonderful system and curriculum of koan and method of working with koan. It's a great system uh, full of little jokes and pantomime. It's kind of wonderful to have this sort of system of religious study where you're plumbing the depths of, of existence and suffering and the form of it is in little pantomimes and, and jokes and laughter. It's kind of, kind of great in a way. Um, and the emphasis is on making these stories of the ancients very personal. In other words, it's not like I'm reading a story about uh, Zhao Zhou or Muman. This is a story about my life right now and I have to make it about my life right now and I have to show how that's so. It's not enough for me to talk about the story and say, well, what, what, you know, what Zhao Zhou really means is this. No, it has to be about my life. It has to be about my life now. And it has to be something that I can absolutely demonstrate with full confidence. So this makes for some pretty lively and fun uh, religious practice. And it also makes for a lot of frustration, too, because you all know the stories of, you know, you go to the teacher to present your answer to the koan. No matter what you say or do, he seems to or she seems to ring the little bell, and you're out there and you think, "What happened there? You know, what am I supposed to do now?" So uh, that's how this system uh, works, and uh, it it um, so it's kind of wonderful and, and fun in a way, uh, also extremely frustrating. And also, uh, like any system, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily function uh, properly. And um, 
it, there were many times since this system was devised in, when it fell into ruin and corruption. And there was one uh, anonymous Japanese monk a few centuries ago who got so disgusted with the triviality and corruption of the koan system that he wrote a book of answers to all the koans. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you may think this is kind of funny because how could there be answers to the koan? But in fact, there are answers to the koan. There are things, there are very specific things that you have to present in response to a specific koan. And you could write, the, you could actually do that. And you could have, and, and you know, goodness knows that before he wrote this book, Monks were doing this for each other. They're saying, oh, what koan are you on? Well, here's, just do this, and then he'll go for it, you know. And they were doing this, you know. So, uh, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but of course, this is, human beings are human beings, you know, even, even in monasteries, and of course, this is going to happen. So, this, this did happen, and there, I think an Israeli, oddly, an Israeli Buddhist scholar translated this anonymous book. You can find it now. I, I forget the title of it, but it's a little obscure, but, but you can find this book where... Uh, of course, the thing is that the, since the koans are used differently in different lineages, the answer in one lineage may not be the answer in another lineage. So for the modern reader, you might you know, read the book and go into your teacher and present, but then they would say, no, no, because wrong lineage, you know, wrong answer. So it, it seems to be a book that is out of print because it hasn't served the modern koan student too well. Um, another problem with the system is, uh, and I think most of the people who teach it nowadays in the West, it's all very new to us, right? And, uh, and there's no, you know, in those days, you had a big ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy. So, you know, it was worth something to pass your coins. Now you don't get anything out of it except the fame and fortune of being a Zen master. Uh, so at this point, uh, the system is actually fairly good shape, I think, in the West. It's not too corrupt. But still, there's a problem of you have this curriculum and you have this sort of graduated, you know, you advance and you kind of complete the study and so forth. It does sort of make for a kind of acquisitive spirit, you know, that can overcome uh, the koan system. You know, what koan are you on? Oh, you're only on that one? Well, I'm on this one. I, I passed that one a long time ago, you know. And then, but we're not supposed to talk about it. So let's not talk about what koan we're on. What koan? Well, this happens, you know, so, and this does happen uh, in, in current, uh, you know, uh, Western koan study uh, lineages. And uh, then, besides that, there's another problem, which is that presumably the idea is that you go through this curriculum. It takes many, many years of study to get through the entire curriculum. I forget how many koan there are, but it's, I think it's well over a thousand in some lineages, and, and each koan may have several points that are like separate koans underneath, you know, as subpoints. So it takes a really long time. And at the end of the training, you are presumably uh, an enlightened Zen master, but then maybe you aren't really, you know. So this is, becomes a problem that that you might, in other words, you, could somebody be quite talented, legitimately and truly talented? in this religious system and in many ways be a boob when it comes to guiding people in spiritual practice and the answer to that is probably yeah probably there could be and in fact we have examples of people who are highly developed in this particular skill and talent of sort of cognizing reality through the lens of this system they may be legitimately good at it and at the same time not have other qualities that it takes to be uh, a spiritual guide so that's also a problem with the system.
you know, we, we hear a lot about Satori or the Zen openings and enlightenment in relation to the koan, that, that, that the koan is a vehicle for the development of this experience of Satori. And um, Satori is, you know, we all know about immediate spiritual openings uh, where you experience for a moment, you know, the oneness of all things and the sort of disappearance of the self into everything. And, and a complete sense of kind of immunity, living or dying, it makes no difference, you know, nothing, uh, everything is perfect as it is and nothing needs to be done. Interestingly, uh, not many people realize that that experience doesn't come at the end of koan study, it actually comes at the beginning. Uh, you know, there's a, in the system, usually uh, most systems uh, use the first koan of the Mumon Khan, one of the collections, as the in initial koan, and passing that koan and having a Satori experience is, the, is sort of the beginning. Then you really have entered the system, and then you spend 20 years or 15 years, whatever it takes, going through all the other koan. So uh, the Satori experience uh, is very important, but one should recognize that it is not the end of the road, it's actually the, the beginning of the road. And it's also uh, a glimpse, you know, an immediate experience that doesn't, in fact, necessarily have transform one's life altogether. I mean, any experience transforms one's life, right? On a moment-by-moment -moment basis, we're literally having experiences that transform our lives. And some major experience in, in our lives, we never forget. And we're a different person having had that experience. And that's certainly true of Satori, I think, that experience... You are a different person from then on. At the same time, you're still the same person. You still have the same problems that you had before and and same lack of spiritual insight, perhaps, that you had before. It takes a long time to integrate that experience uh, into a life, into a spirituality, and that is supposed to be the work of the rest of the koan system. Uh, so... The, the classical description, I mean, we just had a little bit of our own experience of working with a koan, but the classical description of koan practice is given in the, this uh, koan I mentioned a moment ago, uh, the first koan of Mumon Khan, which is the famous koan. It's, Does the dog have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhou answers, Mu. Everybody knows the Mu koan. It's usually the first koan in most of the systems. So, the comment on this koan is usually cited as the method for working with koan. It's very dramatic and hyperbolic and very Zen. You know, Master Muman says, you should make the koan into a hot iron ball which you have swallowed and you can't Swallow, you, 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 it's, it's in you, you can't swallow it and digest it, and you can't spit it out, he says. He says you should make your whole body, all your 10,000 hair follicles and joints and everything, into one big mass of doubt and questioning. And, and the whole body should be standing on its tiptoes, bristling with this effort. And then suddenly... At some point, and for Master Mumon, it was a six-year process, the sky burst forth 
and Mu opens up like an eggshell and everything is clear. You can see all this sort of Zen shouting and you know so forth and so on, how that would come out of this kind of culture of really, because uh, so, it doesn't emphasize relaxation or calmness. It emphasizes really seeing right now what's what. And so in the meditation hall in Zen, uh, I mean, I think in our milieu it's less so. I mean, it's more, a little more, there's a certain sense of recognition of many, many things, because this can be abusive, obviously. But in the, in the Zen halls of ancient, in ancient times, there was a lot of you know, huge intensity and loud noises and run more, more, you know, work harder and so forth. And, and this is something to be said for that. Uh, in my own training, I had lots of retreats where that was the case, and I always found it energizing and, and interesting and, and fun. Uh, in most monastic systems where the koan are practiced, a very important aspect of the practice, and probably an essential one for the traditional practice, is the practice of interview. So usually you're working on koan in a, in a session or a Zen retreat and there's interviews being conducted all day long every day and you probably go in for interview once or twice a day. And so you're going into interview, you know, maybe if you sit a, a five or seven day retreat, you might go in for interview 15, 20 times and you go into the interview and you present your understanding of the koan and, and, uh, you know, usually the bell rings and, you know, you're gone. But the teacher does either consciously feeling that you're doing well and you, you just need a little hint, gives you a hint, or sometimes unconsciously doesn't intend to give you a hint, but the response that you get from the teacher does give you a hint. So this is very important because these hints and these interactions with the teacher, even when you don't answer the koan properly, are very helpful in your ongoing meditation on the koan. They kind of shift the ground all of a sudden and you go back to your seat and meditate more on the koan and then it changes things and it helps you to, helps you to pass it. Which tells you that the system, and, and you know, in, in Zen monasteries, they would have a five or seven day retreat probably every month. And then the, the atmosphere in the monastery was very simple and focused with lots of silence. So even, even when they weren't in a retreat, it was like a retreat. So that tells you that the practice and the method has to be different in a situation like ours where uh, you might go on retreats but not every month uh, and the retreat has a different function perhaps in your life than it might have had uh, for the Zen uh, monks. There were uh, also koan teachers who used the koan like the one that we did in the beginning rather than going through, and this was in old China, uh, I think fairly common, that instead of a whole curriculum of koan, there would be one koan, maybe that you would sit with your, for your whole lifetime. And it might be just exactly the one that we were using, because that's a, that's a traditional one. Who is listening to this sound? You might practice that meditation for many, many years. Or, or the koan, just who is it? Or what is it? would be something that you might sit with for many, many years. And in this style, it's less about presenting your answer to the koan and going on to the next one and being frustrated if you don't have the right answer. And more, in other words, it's not about the answers in this system, it's just about the question. 
So you sit with and develop the question deeper and deeper and deeper over many, many years. In, uh, in the school of <coughs> Zen that I've practiced in for many years, uh, Soto Zen, um, and there are different uh, lineages of Soto Zen in the West, but uh, uh, my lineage is from uh, Suzuki Roshi at Zen Center, and following Dogen's method, which apparently was not to use uh, koans in a systematic method, to use them not necessarily as the main method, but to use them, uh, to offer them to students for particular purposes once in a while. The main practice being just sitting, just being with the breath and just being with the posture without the introduction of a story, but, but with a spirit of questioning and inquiry all the time, just through the agency of the breathing and the posture. And that's that practice is called shikantaza, just sitting. And that's the practice that, that I've done. Dogen also seemed to use koan. He talked about koan all the time. But rather than giving his students koan and answering and so forth, he would basically give dharma talks that were koan, long dharma talks that were koan-like. <clears throat> and the students would listen to the talks, not as discursive you know, teachings, but as experiential opportunities to understand themselves in the deepest way. So it was like Dogen gave Dharma talks that were koan study in and of themselves. Just to sit and listen and meditate during the talk uh, was considered to be the koan study. And, and that tradition continued through Suzuki Roshi and up to the present, although uh, in our lineage now, Dharma talks, uh, there's a variety of ways that Dharma talks are given, sometimes more discursively but sometimes in that same koan spirit. Then there's another, and this is where I think this practice becomes very relevant and useful to us. Uh, Dogen also created a, a new kind of a koan uh, that he, that he uh, called Genjo Koan. Genjo Koan. Uh, which means, Genjo Koan means something like... Um, I usually like to translate it, the koan of the present moment. And this was not uh, a koan, a literary device, uh, a story, but it was more like the koan that always arises when you exist. Every moment of existence actually is a moment of inquiry, is a moment of questioning. And he has a famous essay by that title, Genjo Koan. And uh, there are various translations of it that you can find everywhere. It's a beautifully deep piece of writing. <clears throat> and what he says in Genjo Koan is, is basically that if you really are awake and alive to your living, you find that the experience of being itself, just being alive, you know, actually feeling that moment after moment, arises as a koan. In other words, you can't explain it. You can't grasp it. You can't do anything with it. You can only give yourself to it and, and merge with it. And if you approached every moment of your life as a koan in this way, how would you live and how would you practice? Every moment of time is a koan, Dogen says, 
because every moment of time exists exactly at the intersection between time and eternity. We're always at the edge, you know, in, in our living. Of course, we don't notice this. We're too busy. We have problems. We've got to catch the bus. You know, we have to earn a living. And who, whoever, who has time to notice? My God, you know, I'm alive. And this makes no sense. And it's absolutely fantastic and contingent. It could blow away at any moment. And the whole world is lit up. Who has time for this? You know, we're too busy for this. And we haven't focused our minds and our hearts sufficiently to notice it. But Dogen says, in fact, whether you notice it or not, it is that way all the time for you. And can you do your meditation practice and live your life so that you can have some appreciation of this sort of inconceivable moment in which you're always living? Now, there's another angle on this. there's a way to use Genjo Koan, and I use this a lot in my practice, uh, uh, so that you can make it um, a useful way of flipping your life and the events of your life so that they no longer appear to be you know, problems and distractions and difficulties, but rather uh, as aspects of the deep spiritual journey rather than unfortunately mundane distractions that we must transcend or somehow solve. You know, the whole thrust of Zen and of koan study uh, is the recognition that our seemingly little lives and mundane problems are only little because we make them that way, by the way we conceive of them. In reality, every, every life and every moment of every life, as Dogen teaches us, is an inconceivable teetering on the abyss. We don't know what our life is, really. Our lives are seemingly you know, small containers that hold the infinite, temporal, temporal analogs for the infinite. So, how do we use this in actual practice? For example... Suppose uh, I've had a fight uh, with my wife and I'm angry with her and I'm thinking of all the things, the reasons why I'm angry with her and why she's this way and how she she could improve and so forth and so on. I could go on like that uh, for a while and then I could um, then relate to her on the basis of that understanding, compounding my problems, therefore, and eventually kind of creating a cycle of relationship with her that would be, you know, more or less toxic and unhelpful. Or I could be smarter than that. And I could say, well, this has gone on long enough. Let's go to couples counseling and work on our relationship. And we could talk it over and we could think about it and we could see our patterns and we could get beyond them. So that would be good. I probably ought to do that rather than the former But then I can also turn toward the feelings that I'm having themselves. Not get caught by the content of those feelings. It's her fault. She's like this. She's like that. But what am I experiencing? What are these passions that are arising in me? And I could meditate on those feelings as koan. Who is feeling this anger? What is this anger? 
And I could stay with that koan, not as an article of analysis. I'm not trying to figure out our relationship. I'm not trying to improve it even. I'm just trying to take these things that are arising in me as a meditation object, breathing with it, willing to be with it without solving it, but just to understand it with the whole body and mind, and continuing to practice with it in that way on my cushion, and if I'm well enough trained, even off my cushion in daily life until something happens and I really understand the real source of these feelings and of this conflict that seems to be about that my wife spends too much money or whatever it is, but it's nothing to do with that really when I really get to the root of it. So you can see the power of living your life working with koan in, in that way. And I think that this is the way that I think we can make use of the practice of koan in our circumstances, in our lives as they really are. And this is where uh, I think a teacher, a Zen teacher, if one could be skillful enough, uh, could help you to identify the koan in the experience that you're having. Because usually one doesn't see a koan there. One sees only, why is she that way? You know, what's the matter with her? It's been going on a long time. And can't she improve? You don't see. So the teacher can help you to see it that way, encourage you to stay with it as a koan, uh, and guide you uh, toward the quote-unquote answer, which, of course, always leads you to a new question. <laughs>